Hi, I'm Shane Safir. And I'm Alcine Mumby, and this is Street Data Pod, where we dream with you about next-generation schools that affirm, love, and value every learner. Here we have conversations about healing, hope, and listening at the margins. Welcome back, community. We are really excited to continue to explore today this question of season three. What does the street data model look like in action? And today we get to speak with two transformative leaders that we've had the opportunity to spend time with before. Stacy Kunsis, who is the elementary head of school for NACA, Native American Community Academy, and Valerie Kai, Senior Director of Leadership Development for the NACA Inspired School Network. Welcome to you both. The pleasure is ours. Thanks for inviting us to be on your podcast. Thank you for having us. We always like to begin these pod conversations with story. So we're going to invite each of you to speak about just who are you? How do you identify in the world? And then maybe a taste of how your own educational experiences led you to become the educator and leader you are today. Yeah, let's start with you, Stacey. Yeah, it's a Stacey Kunsis. Uh, hello, I just did my formal introduction in the Dine language. I am and I identify first and foremost as Dine matriarch. I also identify as an indigenous educator. And as of March 2014, I am also a Harvard graduate school of education. scholar. So those are the three ways in which I identify my formal introduction. I represent the Honeycomb Clan, the Salt Clan, and the Mountain Cove Clan, all within the Navajo clan system, but I'm also one-fourth Zuni Pueblo. So that's how I identify myself. My, My educational experience, while my mom is an educator, and my mom's side of the family, my maternal side of the family, they're, if they're not social workers, they are educators. So I feel like it is within my lineage to be an educator. Yes. And I think for me in my position right now as Naka's elementary head of school, I feel like I am the embodiment of Naka's motto, which is growing together. When I decided I was going to be an educator, I knew I was always going to be an educator of Indigenous students. And so upon graduating, I went out to a very small remote community just west of Albuquerque called Twahijale, and I served as a fourth grade through eighth grade educator serving the students within that community. And during the pandemic, I became NACA's fourth grade teacher. I served as NACA's fourth grade teacher for three years. And this summer, our executive director asked me if I would be willing to undertake the position as elementary head of school. And since that's what I'm going to school for, I felt like, let me just get my foot in the door and this is what I want to do. This is my goal. My goodness. Wow. And I wouldn't have it any other way because I need to be around Indigenous students. I want to also add that I am a descendant of a Navajo rug weaver, and although I'm all thumbs, I feel like I'm a master of weaver and being able to 
move my different identifiers, the matriarch, the educator, the student, and just to fuse them together and help me to help serve Indigenous students. So that's a little bit about me. Amazing. Let's shift to you, Val. Let's tell us about who you are and how you identify and kind of your own educational experiences. Thank you. Dwashtrek Josh, Kwahename, Zuiwe, Ushwachanu, Isi Washista, Kwekmasta, Awaragek So'o. My name is Valerie Kai. I am from the Pueblo of Laguna, which is about 45 miles west of Albuquerque, where I'm actually calling in from today. I am a big son, little aunt clan. I am a a mother, a wife, um, a hockey mom as well. (laughs) So, you know, I... Uh, when I when I hear Stacy talk about being a Dene matriarch, I also am like learning how that applies to me as well, the term matriarch. And I think it's just no surprise, you know, in my Pueblo, my community, our big clans are passed from your mother um, down the lineage. And so I take a lot of pride in being big son because my mother and my grandma have really shaped who I am and who I've become and the way that I uh, situate the leadership that I hold and, and this, you know, beautiful opportunity, the the work I get to do in Indigenous education means so much to me. And so I think that strength and resilience that Stacy talked about is in my bloodline. And I feel so much pride and love about that. And so for me, my story begins with my mom. My mom had me at a really young age um, as a 16 year old. And, you know, she sacrificed a lot to, you know, get me, care for me, get me through school. And, you know, she didn't get the opportunity to go to college. You know, she went to be a lawyer. She had all these dreams, but she put them on hold for me. And so as I grew up, I really wanted to, you know, go to college and do all the things she didn't get to do. You know, I knew how to play the game of school pretty much. You know, I knew how to get good grades, do your work, you know, do what you need to do. And I was like, I want to go to school out of state. I don't know why when I think back, why did I want to go to school out of state? But for college, I went and applied to Stanford University. I applied to lots of different colleges. And, you know, at that time, they gave me the best financial aid package. And so, you know, I went there, but I was a fish out of water, mm. you know, as the first person in my family to eventually graduate from college. But in that space, there was so much privilege. I thought, you know, my peers had the best education money could buy. I just remember being in those spaces, feeling like I didn't belong there. But it was also contrary to that experience, the first time that I was able to take Native American studies classes. And it was just why I made my eyes wide open. You know, I had been in this bubble, my own public context. You know, I thought, you know, most tribes were like mine, you know, very immersed in tradition, very immersed in feast days, very immersed in ceremony. You know, we have been very fortunate to be able to remain in our homelands, but that was not the case for many other tribal nations on this continent. And so just hearing from other folks and those experiences that they've had, it really shook me. And it made me angry too. It made me angry because why did it take me having to pay for my education to get that kind of knowledge? And so, yeah, in that experience, I knew that I wanted to work with youth with Native youth, Indigenous youth. And so then I found out about NACA, Native American Community Academy. And so I found where I needed to be. And that was really serving and working with Indigenous youth, really making them proud of who they are, where they come from. And so I I have so much appreciation for the hard parts of of my journey that got me to this place, because I, I never thought that I would finish college in four years. You know, 
I, I would never thought that I had this amazing opportunity to work at NISN where I get to work with 13 other you know, schools who are doing this amazing work of making their community dreams happen. But, you know, one thing I want to mention before, before we go on is that, you know, I have so much admiration for Stacy. She was my son's fourth grade teacher. So, you know, I've seen her work her magic. Yes. Um, I'm also a, a Naka mom as well. So we have so much street data that comes from our kids. <laughs> what's, what's going on at the school level? Amazing. Oh my goodness. Both of your stories are so beautiful and powerful. And just thank you for calling in your ancestral lineages and your mom and your grandma and the weaving, right? Like, it's funny when you said that, Stacey, I was thinking, I come from all these agricultural people and I've been to these lands, but I'm so, I kill every plant I try to grow. (laughs) (laughs) I have the least green thumb, but somehow I think you're right. These things live in us as metaphors and in the ways we move in the world, even if we don't have like the skill set. So just thank you for all the texture you brought to those answers. So we're going to continue with this concept of story. And I would love for you all to tell us the story of NACA and Nissan. How did the school and eventually the organization emerge? The Native American Community Academy was founded mid-2000s. If you're familiar with New Mexico or familiar with Albuquerque, there's many tribal nations that, you know, reside here within the, the state. And so our school districts have not done justice in serving Indigenous students. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the statistics, I don't remember the current number, but majority of our students are in district schools. In Albuquerque, we have such a strong urban Native population, and the school district had not been serving them well. I mean, even now, I I tell folks, you know, there's, there's something called the Tribal Education Status Report that, you know, here in New Mexico, the Indian Education Act mandates, you know, our Indigenous students need need to have language, they need to have, you know, see themselves reflected in what they're learning. And despite many efforts, that's not happening. Mm. You know, you look at expulsion rates, and they remain really high for, for our Native students. And you look at academic proficiencies, and they remain low. So, you know, we had our founders for the Native American Community Academy, they you know, had many conversations with community members here in Albuquerque. What is it that you envision for your children? How can we, you know, provide the best education? And so a lot of those conversations resulted in the mission that is NACA. And I think the three big ideas in that mission statement are around academic preparation, but also identity, being securing your identity and also well. And, you know, through that work, the school was, was started as a district charter school. It started with sixth and seventh grade then uh, went on to high school, and then eventually added on the elementary grades. So it's a school here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, serving close to 500 students in grades K through 12. You know, a lot of communities started to take notice, you know, how do we do something like that in our own communities? And, you know, Shiprock, which is a, a small town here near in the four corners of New Mexico, was one of the first communities that, you know, started to have community conversations that then informed the mission of the school. And like, here we are many years later, there's 13 schools in operation in the Knock Inspired Schools Network. So we're the nonprofit entity that, you know, works with communities to help them realize that dream. follow up and feel free either one of you but maybe this is a question for you Stacy. so going back to like what does it 
look like, sound like, and feel like if I were to, you know, uh, attend a NACA classroom or, or visit a NACA classroom? And, and then maybe, Val, how has your partnership with Nissan changed what teaching and learning looks like at NACA? So at NACA, we also center our students and our educational practices around a wellness will. So we look at a child's holistic wellness. So the academic portion would be like the intellectual, but we also focus on their social emotional because that's very important and that can impact a student's learning. But then we look at their physical, what are their physical needs? What, you know, just recently at our main campus, we are developing a care closet for students who need that extra support so that their their needs are being met so that their little brains can focus on learning. And then lastly, we look at community or relational wellness, like how are you doing? So mm. every parent-teacher conference, our families go through, our students go through analyzing their own wellness on this wellness wheel, looking at all four different quadrants. But then in addition to that, NACA has established six core values. I want to say they're like our rules. We base our rules around them and our policies and our procedures around them. And so our first core value is respect. Our second core value is responsibility, followed by community and service, culture, perseverance, and reflection. And we work these core values into our instructional pieces, into our classroom management, into how we explain safety to kids. So the holistic approach is what NACA utilizes to help educate and make their educational experience most meaningful. want to add Val about the Nissen relationship to NACA that you want to lift up? Yeah you know I think I'll just share that I started teaching at NACA in its second year this was back in 2006 and so I was hired to teach native literature and reading and so at that time you know for middle school there was not a whole lot out there that was developmentally appropriate you know material wise and we were often having to build the plane as we flew it in terms of curriculum for native literature. And so, you know, through that emerged a practice. How do we go about original curriculum design for, you know, I can't go off the shelf and buy Hoot and Mifflin and there's going to be native literature. I can't count on that. You know, the publishers are not looking out for us. And that's why, you know, we we are the students and teachers at the margins, you know, because we, we don't have those materials ready for us. And so we had to go through a learning process. It was many, many years of like figuring out what are the texts, you know, the learning activities, how are we going to set this curriculum up? So through its longevity and its history, you know, NACA has definitely been leading the way in original curriculum design. So that's a practice that we carried over to NACA Inspired Schools Network nice. when we became a separate organization. And when we do work and partner with Indigenous communities who are wanting to do a school design plan to start a school centered on their needs, we look at, you know, the curriculum. And how for, you know, initial years, maybe but we say uh, buy, build, or blend, and we, we want to blend, but eventually work towards, you know, how can you create a curriculum 
that is indicative of your ways of knowing and being the values that you have. And so that's one of the, the strong partnerships. The learning that happened at NACA has been transferred over to NISN. And we also partner with teachers at our network. You know, Stacy last year was such a big help in our Native Literature elementary curriculum. We're starting Indigenous science curriculum development. We really believe in teacher designers, especially in, in the writing process, hmm. the curriculum writing process. So inspiring. And just for our really dedicated listenership who has heard all the episodes, if folks remember the episode with Linda Darling Hammond from the first season, she has studied transformative schools across the states and narrowed down to a very short list of which NACA is one of the schools that her work profiles because of the transformative curriculum design and approaches that you all learn. So just a little connection back to a previous episode. All right, so this question is sort of in the spirit of, I think, weaving that Stacy invoked earlier. So we understand that Nissen runs a national leadership fellowship program for Indigenous leaders called Growing Together, and that you chose Street Data as the anchor text for that program, which I have to say was very humbling to learn. We would love to hear you, invite you to talk about the connections you see between street data and the kind of transformative work that you're leading and why why you selected the book. Yeah, I think we've we've come to the recognition that for too long others have co-opted our story. And I think that's been done because a lot of researchers, a lot of satellite data, map data has told our story for us mm. in terms of, you know, attendance rates, in terms of uh, graduation rates. And so we have not been able to tell the story of what's right in our schools and our communities. And so street data has allowed us to center what's important, right? I think one of the things that I take from street data is we don't always measure what's valuable. And for the schools in our network, what's valuable are what we see walking through the door every day is our students. You know, how are they feeling? Are they happy? Are they smiling? Are they cared for? And so, you know, I think the shift in our organization at Naka's Bart Schools Network was really during the pandemic. You know, I think that a lot of our schools were the community's dreams. They have mission statements. A lot of our school's mission statements are centered around four big ideas, identity development, holistic wellness, academic relevance, and our community-led. And so when the pandemic came, you know, I, I saw a lot of our schools shifting back to replicating Western schooling, replicating district models. And I get that, you know, it was really hard to figure out remote learning. And so I, I started to not recognize, along with my awesome colleagues at our, our network, was not recognizing a lot of our schools anymore. And then the story nationally was like the learning gap, you know, kids are not learning, and you know, and I was like, what do you mean? Like our kids have more time with home, you know, uh, or with family members, our kids are getting out on the land, you know, back in their communities. How do we not see land and elders and parents as knowledge keepers? Like, you know, so that really propelled us to do something about it. And so, you know, we knew that we needed to pause our our school design fellowship and that fellowship is grounded in new school design and we really need to double down on our supports for existing schools and so we started the growing together fellowship as a space for teacher leaders school leaders to get grounded back in their mission to have a dreaming space right to have a space where we're talking about you know what does it mean to be a leader in indigenous education and so 
we actually had the opportunity to do a street data book study with our NISN staff alongside doing some anti-bias, anti-racism work. So those things were kind of happening at the same time. We were like, you know, what if we took this book as one of the anchor texts for our Growing Together Fellowship? And, you know, I think we just thought it was a good conversation starter, you know, a succinct way of looking at what is the shared language when we think about centering students, because at the end of the day, I think that's what we're all here for as our students, right? I think this work is very selfless. We're putting students first. We're being vulnerable. So we just saw so many connections in the way that we were viewing the work we get to do with a lot of those big concepts in street data. I loved your story about the pandemic and learning loss and that reframing of, you know, that this deficit language that's so seductive, right? That we're, oh, kids are losing. And I love the reframing through the abundance of being in community and being with elders and being on the land. That's so beautiful. What are some indigenous ways of knowing and being that you all believe, if centered and applied, would shift the way that teaching and learning happens here in the States for all learners, not just indigenous learners, but certainly we want to center indigenous learners in that. Yeah. I'm going to start with, you know, what you were mentioning before, Alcine. And, you know, when we think about the trajectory of indigenous education, we believe strongly that we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. Mm. You know, there was a genius, a way of life that sustained our people through the boarding school era, through termination, you know, through all the assimilationist policies, the federal state policies that really did their best to take away our agency, take away our land, you know, take away those most important things, our languages. And so when you think about that, just long-term, our people are still here and they've, had the resilience, that strength. And you have to think, how did they get through that and still be able to stand here today? You know, Stacey and I speaking our, I would say our, our, our language today, introducing ourselves. And so there has to be something in that way of knowing that has, you know, propelled us to, to be here <laughs> 2023. And so, you know, I think in an, an indigenous way of knowing is not so much being concerned. I mean, when I think about the way our school system has been set up, they're measuring us on all the wrong things as things that aren't going to sustain right. us, you know, into the next generation. And so I think two things definitely come to mind in terms of um, indigenous ways of knowing. And that's one is just relationships. When I think about my own upbringing, you know, we're, we're taught that we've already been given those instructions, those original instructions, those, those values and those rules for lack of a better term that, you know, guide how we engage with one another. And like one of the most tangible ways of that is like when you walk into a space and you see community members, their family members, you're taught that, you know, you say and hi and acknowledge everybody in that space. They're all a relative to you, whether flood or not. And I just think about how we set up classrooms today you know, they're so sanitized. <laughs> I'm the teacher, I'm the vessel of knowledge, and you're my little sponge, she's got to soak it up. And I think that was one of the specific ways street data resonated with us. It's like a sense of belonging. And so you'll find in many of the, the schools that we work with, you know, that they, they value the relationship, the kinship that exists between the adults and the children in that space. You know, they view each other as nephew, niece, and auntie and uncle right? Because there's an obligation, there's a commitment when you have that relationship rather than teacher and student. 
<laughs> the other one is, you know, land as teacher going back to the pandemic story, you know, it's like whoever made the rule that learning has to happen between four walls, right? I mean, we don't get enough of that. And that, you know, seeing that there's so much to be learned in our natural environment, there's a relationship there as well, you know, that our students, our indigenous students, all students need to know about and to be able to participate in. And I was laughing the other day, it actually was yesterday, my son, he was telling me, and he, like I said, he goes, he goes to Naka, but he was like, yeah, mom, sometimes my friends and I, we just tell each other, go outside and touch the grass, go outside and touch the dirt. Like it was just random because it just made me think about that messaging that you're getting that it's so important to like get outside and not be cooped up. And that's, I mean, that's the experience we all got. I mean, I sat in classrooms my whole K through 12 experience. So I land as teacher and then just the need to, to be in relationship with the people that we're, we're learning with and learning from. So when the pandemic had happened, my daughter was in fourth grade and she was like, yeah, like no school. I don't have to do, you know, whatever. And I was like, girl, first of all, your mom's a social studies teacher. Your grandma's a Navajo language teacher. At the time, your uncle who lived with us is a middle school math teacher and your and his 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 fiance was a third grade teacher. So I'm like, you're going to school (laughs) because that year and I jokingly tell people this all the time because I reentered NACA in 2020. I jokingly say, like, would not would not recommend changing schools during a pandemic. But during that year, like, we're trying to, as a fourth grade class, we're trying to navigate the, the technology. I'm trying to still teach them how to write paragraphs. I'm still trying to teach them how to do multiplication and all of this information. But I, I just, I recall, like, times that winter here in New Mexico, it snowed. There was snow. And I remember telling my students, like, go outside, go play, go roll in the snow. Yes. And I tried a lot of their homework that year, or homework, because they were home all the time, right? Their homework was, like, go ask your parents, go interview someone, or go, I utilize a scavenger hunt app, and go find different things, go do different things, get up and move. And I think for me, the street data that I collected from that is something what Val said, like learning doesn't just happen within the four walls of a school. And in, we can use different ways to assess our students. And, you know, I remember during that time, like I was like, okay, how am I going to teach speaking and listening on Zoom, right? And so I would call up random students. I'm like, who wants to you know, because the kids are like, oh, I don't feel like writing. Can we just type? Can we just do voice typing and their paragraphs? And I was like, no, we need to write because I was worried, like, what is your fine motor skills going to look like after this? I'm like, okay, I need you to motivate your pencil. Your pencil is not feeling it, not having a good day. You need to give it a pep talk, let it know that it's going to have to do a bunch of writing some of it's going to be hard. And so for me, because I could see the little sad faces in my little Zoom screens, you know, and I was just like, they need that pep talk, you know, and that's where 
using the street data just from their little faces on Zoom, I was like, my students, I'm, I'm not, like Val said, I'm not this vessel of information and knowledge. I'm not the only motivator here. Like they can motivate each other. Yes. They can learn from each other. I'm going to put them into breakout rooms and they're going to work together. And it really brought me back to thinking of what education looked like before establishments. And in our indigenous communities, learning was helping prepare dinner, helping elders do different things. It was story times. It was asking questions. And right now, although we're back in within the four walls of a classroom, we don't have to stay stuck. I hear the saying of, you know, learning loss and we got to go pre-pandemic. And I'm just like, but that system wasn't all that great to begin with. Like Mm -hmm. we're in this time period where we can make it better. We can make it fun for kids. And at NACA last year, part of utilizing the tools that we gained from the street data book one of it was talking about joy how do we bring joy and autonomy back into the classroom so utilizing that and that's a tool that I use we had open house two days ago at NACA and you know I'm a 90s kid I was all about where's Waldo and so we had our students we created passports for them. You need to go find the head of school. You need to go visit the elementary garden. You need to go get dinner. You need to, And so at every station, they received a signature for the middle schoolers. And so our little elementary kids were going around. And I was making it a point as elementary head, just being in various spaces so that they were constantly having to find me. And remember what I look like. Like, oh, who's Miss Kuntz's? Oh, she's right there. And then I would move. And so that brought a lot of joy to our kids. And, you know, coupled with street data and like my graduate coursework, they had always told us like, if you're going to, if parents are going to make it a point to come back to campus after hours, it needs to be engaging. They have to be doing something. They can't just stand there and listen the entire time because they're they're not going to get anything out of it and so you know I was really proud of how NACA handled open house so that's something I want to use street data this coming school year as the head is like let's bring joy back into the classroom because school should be fun and it scares me you know learning loss it's when you when I hear the term learning loss that puts the responsibility on the kids which is unfair And it's not right. I think you're you're both familiar with the the way that street data sort of posits that the most important data in schools is student voice and experience, right? And that we really have to focus on listening deeply to students and community, which I know you all do and did long before the book came out. I'm working on a next book, which Stacey knows about because she was a teacher voice in the process of writing the proposal. And that book is going to focus on really on pedagogy and what are pedagogies of student voice that cultivate student agency as defined in the first book around identity and belonging and mastery and efficacy, all these things. 
And so I just feel like you've made so many natural connections to this already, right? Whether it's Stacy, we're talking about the asking question, growing into a learner who asked questions, right? Or Val talking about that lack of belonging at Stanford and the ways that that environment really alienated you. And then the Naka mission around learners being not just academically prepared, but secure in their identity and healthy, whole human beings, right? Well, that we're measuring wellness. So... All that said, the question here is, can you talk about how each of you sees a pedagogy of student voice that would cultivate this sense of joy and identity and belonging and mastery? And really, like, what what do you see as the most important pedagogical practices in the classroom that educators can really develop to create that? I think I learned late in life how important vulnerability is Mm. and like just the creation of safe space and so I've been out of the classroom for about seven years now I believe but I, I reflect back on and I think about my my young readers my male readers because I had the hardest time reaching them in my native literature classes and so I always think back what could I have done better like with the tools that I've accumulated since then and I think it's like vulnerability in that that space making for students to feel better it's okay to make mistakes because you grow from them and that took a lot of just me learning (laughs) you know trying out new things Um, my own community I was a project coordinator for language revitalization project when I left teaching for for two years and I failed so much but then I I learned from those mistakes and then just this work on vulnerability and shame and you know so I think that to move towards student agency and student voice. I'm wondering how teachers are cultivating those safe spaces in classrooms for students to be vulnerable, to try on new things, like in a very low stakes way so they can build their confidence in that. Lightning round, five seconds or less. I think we can do it. Five seconds or less, right? Okay, first question. You are called to listen deeply to someone, but what they have to say is triggering. What's the first thing you do? Val. Uh, I let them finish and then I question after. What did you mean by that? Say more. Beautiful. Stacy. I, I say say more too, just to, yeah, have them elaborate. Awesome. Lightning round number two. What is a practice or a way of being or a ritual that keeps you grounded in the struggle for educational justice? Stacy. I'm a long life learner and I let that be known. I don't know. Every, I am honest. I don't know everything, but I'm willing to learn. Wow. Just being with students, you know, going and, and seeing them smile, just being around them like this is our medicine and this is our why. Beautiful. What's one form of street data every educator should gather? Val. What happens when my students read texts that reflect their lived experience? Oh, love that. Stacy. I think it's street data that teachers should collect is know their know part of their story, not just their name. So good. Conversely, what is a type of data you feel is overused? Stacy. Uh testing data because we didn't have testing during the pandemic and we lived, right? (laughs) Thank you, Val. Attendance data, graduation rates. Okay, a great learning experience, Will. What what do you hope is the impact of a great learning experience, Valerie? Great learning experience allows us to be teachers and learners interchangeably. Ooh, that's so good. Stacey. 
I think a great learning experience encourages the learner. It's like positioning yourself from the learner into a teacher position and to move that lesson along. Just taking away so much energy and joy from this conversation. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank you all so much. We appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hey, Street Data Pod, we would love to hear your Street Data stories and questions. So just leave us a voicemail at 415-335-9997 or send an email to streetdatapod at gmail.com. We might even feature your question or voicemail on a future episode. Street Data Pod is executive produced and hosted by Shane Safir and Alcine Mumby. The senior producer is Jess Alvarenga and our production manager is Jamie Valle. Thank you to Zoe Morgan for social media support and a special shout out to Rocky Rivera for our theme music. If you want to get a copy of Street Data, visit Amazon, Corwin Press, or better yet, a local independent or Black-owned bookstore. At Corwin's website, use discount code STREETDATA, all caps, to get 20% off. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe and give us a five-star review. And if you found us rambling or fumbling over our words, remember, we can't be articulate all of the time. You know what I think, Stacey? I think this conversation was so powerful. That's why all these other disruptions had to come in because there's, there's just, just really powerful. That's what I think whenever things start to go wrong. I'm like, oh, I must be- The colonial forces were trying to shut it down <laughs> through the technology. <laughs> <laughs>